say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but what if those intentions were more sinister from the beginning? I'm Nikki B, resident pop culture expert, here with utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're going to take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to The Road to Hell. Welcome back, everybody, to The Road to Hell podcast. This is number five, I want to say. And today we're talking about the movie Branded from 2012, which is apparently a quintessential Russian film, at least in its uh, aesthetic. So (laughs) I wouldn't know. I haven't seen any Russian films, but... That's the word on the street, anyway. This is Russian. I mean, I think Russian is the word. It's dark, gloomy. It's a very yeah. cynical movie. And and that you don't follow Michael Malice on the internet at all. Um, I wouldn't say follow. I'm aware <laughs> okay. of him. A lot of a lot of that personality, I guess, is that like when I think of Russian, that's what I think of. Okay, it's just very like snarky. I, I think snark is the way he comes off. I think that's how how he dealt with the more unfeeling elements of his family, perhaps. I, I think it's a it's a culture that demands toughness and like loud survival, things like that. Well, that's an interesting thing to raise in the context of this movie, the idea of the culture requiring toughness, because this movie, for people who haven't seen it, which is probably most people. Uh, I never even heard of this movie until you brought it up. But um, it's about basically advertising, marketing, ad- ads. It's about propaganda, public relations, all of those wonderful things in the sort of corporate sense. So I guess our hero, if we want to call him a hero, yeah, I'd, I'll call him a hero. Misha is this ad man uh, in Russia, and we just kind of follow his exploits as he discovers what advertising really is. So it's about advertising and uh, marketing in general. But one thing that really stood out to me throughout the film, especially at the end, was this idea of banning advertisement, like using the government as a tool to ban ads because advertising is, in the movie anyway, portrayed as sort of like intrinsically a bad thing, Uh, again, especially toward the end. And so I was just thinking of the idea of using the state as a way of curtailing this evil of advertising and wondering how that plays into this culture of toughness. Because on the one hand, it's like, all right, we're going to be tough on this evil thing, and so we're going to use the government to stomp it down. But on the other hand, doesn't like sort of nanny state protectionism speak to the opposite? Well, and here's the, here's the thing. If you're paying what is the big thing that's happening in the movie? And this could also be part of the Russian element of it. They were Americanizing. Yeah. They were becoming more like us as a people. And what else is happening? They're becoming fat, more unhealthy. They're becoming less able to deal with the shit around them and more willing to just let other people deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of how I read into that. Like it was almost a destruction of their society to become more like us. So where does the rush, the characteristic Russian toughness fit into that equation? Like, is it manifesting in the form of banning advertisements as this kind of like anti-Western reaction or is it something else? 
my point. That's like the ultimate American thing to do, I think. Gotcha. Is to not deal with it and make it somebody else's problem. Okay. Because even me, even Misha, like that, his whole his whole thing at the end of the movie is to kind of society into doing that. And what's really amusing is, and as a marketer and someone in this industry will say, it's n- I don't look at marketing as being evil. I'm looking at it as an understanding, an understanding of how people are. Whether or not you want to be this way, you are. And you can do good things and you can do evil things. The, the whole idea in this is that a lot of people decide to use the marketing and the psychological knowledge of human beings that that gives them to do pretty awful things, like manipulate entire societies to do very bad things. However, the entire like third of last third of the movie were the more fantastical sci-fi elements of it. Misha actively uses the same techniques to fight back against the corporate powers in the beginning of it. And, and you know, gives us those funny little scenes are fighting in the air. <laughs> right. Each of the brands literally killing each other. And, and so with all technology, we, we, we say this all the time, with everything, there's a double-edged sword and how it can be used. Like if you, you know, branding, using psychological manipulation to get people to be healthier with people and to do, make better decisions. And absolutely, I think that that's a, a net positive for the world. Now, if you're going to take that and do horrible, horrible things there and get them to, you know, balloon up to be fatties and change the standard of beauty so that people will will be more accepting of unhealthy lifestyles and habits, that's probably an evil thing to do as well. Which is of what this whole movie really is about. Like the 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 story is, it's following Misha, uh, who is for all, for all intents and purposes a. It opens up with him just being a special person. Mm-hmm. Like for whatever reason, he's one of those people down and said, life's going to be interesting for you, kid. Right. And it is. You know, his introduction into marketing is just the most hilarious thing in the world because he he's, helps his boss sell more stuff, sell more product. Utilizing the psychological tools that he understands innately to help push product and and then his, you know, his last rule of marketing is don't trust anyone because the minute he says, hey, I want to cut of it, the guy right. says, ah, I did the song. I don't know who the hell you are. Get out of here. At which point he then goes and does awful things to him, you know, in the cutthroat business of marketing, you know, and that's how it kind of works his way up is. But this movie is also told, if you remember, like he is also not unbeknownst to him, but in some form or fashion, a spy for a company that's trying to enter the Russian market for American consumer goods. So how do we manipulate these people? How do we understand them to manipulate them better? Right, right. There's a lot of different points to jump into there. Uh, Just while you were talking, I was thinking of so many different connections to make because the movie is like four movies going on at once. It's uh, There's a lot to it. But I think before... We get really specifically into any of that. The word dragons got mentioned a minute or so ago. And I, for people listening who might be saying, what the fuck did you just say? I thought you said this is about marketing. I just want to take a minute to kind of zoom out and explain exactly what the hell happens in this movie. So very briefly, this guy Misha is into advertising, but based on you know the 
cutthroat nature of that world. He winds up being disillusioned about, I don't know, halfway through the movie or so. And he basically leaves town. He goes out to this rural area and kind of gets spoken to in his dream. Uh, And so his dream just kind of guides him to do what at the moment is a pretty inexplicable thing. He winds up sacrificing a cow and doing this like ritual burnt offering and stuff. Blah, blah, blah. He winds up back in town. And when he's back in town, he start, he's able to see all of these strange creatures that are floating through the air or are attached to people's backs and stuff. Long story short, these creatures that he's quote-unquote hallucinating, but they're actually there, he's seeing brands. Brands, like the sort of corporate entities, have become... The, the way I, I describe it is he sees the physical manifestations of desire. Mm-hmm represented by brands and right and so these brand entities are fed by people constantly giving in to their desires to consume the film's equivalent of mcdonald's or whatever else it may be so these brands take on a life of their own and essentially they've enslaved people and people don't really notice it only he can see them no obviously you know it's one of those like uh it's like they live uh that movie that i'm sure people are familiar with No one can really see the truth behind all of their consumption except him because he went through this ritual. So that's why dragons got mentioned. Because basically some of the the brands take on more monstrous forms than others. And by the end of the movie, when Misha is essentially engaging and starting this kind of brand war, that's a term that's used in the business world, brand war. But in the movie, because we see through Misha's eyes... We actually see that this brand war is a literal war between between these creatures. So as the stocks rise and fall of various businesses, we're, we're witnessing these gigantic dragons and jellyfish monsters fighting in the streets of Moscow, basically. And nobody sees it except yeah. for Misha. Which is interesting because it's, it's like he sees the physical manifestation of like the the souls of these people being bartered for by the gods, I guess it would be a way, a way of looking at it. And that's, like I said, it's why I'll still classify this as a sci-fi movie, because it's it's, a, it's really just a, I want to say like a corporate espionage movie for like two-thirds of it. And then all of a sudden, like he, he does this mystical ritual, and you're in this this other world for the last third of the movie. My wife actually was telling me something about the, like the, the ritual he goes through in it is an actual ritual, and I believe Judaism. Yeah. I, I'm I'm not terribly well read on Judaism and that like that deep these days more into the religion stuff than I, I am of late. So just just something to be noted. It's it's like the sacrificing of a red calf is like the Yeah. Yeah. In the movie they, they talk about it for a little bit in the movie just to kind of let you know what's going on here. Uh it's the sacrifice of the red cow. And the idea is that it's done as a purification ritual. So if you come into contact with a corpse, you're unclean. And basically, before Misha left Moscow uh, to basically just run off into the rural part of Russia, he touched a dead body, like his kind of benefactor, who turned out to be this like CIA agent, basically, from America. Um, this guy dies. And Misha, you know, like he holds his head or whatever when he dies. So then his dream leads him to do this ritual. Uh, it's a ritual that purifies somebody who's touched a corpse, but it's also meant to purify somebody who's come into contact with the golden calf. So oh. people who remember their, their exodus, the golden calf was the idol 
created by the Israelites after they fled Egypt. And of course, this earns them the fury of Moses and the Lord. And uh, so the golden calf is the sort of quintessential symbol of idol worship. And of course, gold is an obvious analog for money, which then, of course, we can easily see being tied into the world of marketing and business. So Misha has essentially spent his entire life not only worshiping the golden calf, but fashioning golden calves for people to worship because he's a marketer. And so he undergoes this ritual that purifies somebody who's been in contact with the golden calf. And now he can see the true machinations of the demons, which he's brought into this world. (laughs) It's a very poetic thing. I enjoyed that part. I like the little ritual magic in there. It's a fairly surreal movie, obviously, but even in the beginning, like just the way things are, the way it's shot, the way people interact, it's not quite realistic. Like it's realistic enough that you can tell it's you know, it's telling a story about the world and the way it is, but there's just something kind of weird about this world. And um, that just becomes more apparent after this ritual. But because the movie was already kind of strange, the supernatural element, uh, it was welcome, at least by me. I didn't find it annoying. You know, sometimes movies, they just want to throw in supernatural shit, and it's like, oh, God. Yeah. But it didn't bother me in this one. And I don't know how they pulled that off, but I enjoyed it. I think, as you say, like, things are a little weird to begin with. Nothing really changes in the end of the movie other than you can see what's going on in the world. It's like, really... In the eye of, if you were paying attention, you haven't changed. All you've did is made it so you can see what's already there, and you know. Hence, the idea of a purification ritual. Why it's interesting, because it's like you just you're 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 like they live, you know, in the classic sci-fi. You're glasses and you're seeing the world as it really is, and you're seeing, like you could take it as magic. Or, you know, for me, I'd look at it as, you, just, you know, you could look the, from the Matrix perspective and say you're seeing, like, the code underneath. You're seeing things that are guiding society that you would otherwise not see. And what's also interesting in that is what is the... There's like a, I can't remember who the actor plays him. He's the kind of guy you get to do this role. He shows up in, I think, two scenes in the movie. One is to say, all right, guys, you know... How far are you willing to go? Oh, you're talking about the gu- the advertising guru. That's uh, Max von Sydow. Yeah. <laughs> a staple, a Hollywood staple. Absolutely. He's only in two, I think, two scenes. There's the first one where he, you know, lets him know what he can do. And the second one where he's like, uh, well, I don't know what to do from you guys. Then he doesn't even jump out a window or something crazy. <laughs> no, he goes out onto the balcony and gets struck by lightning. Oh, that's right. Just right. like happened to little boy Misha at the... Yes. Um, but w- what is the line? Do you remember specifically that he l- listens to these guys and what yeah. they say? Which because I he says uh, he's asking these fast food magnates how far are you willing to go? And they're like, oh, we'll go as far as we can within the limits of the law. And he's like, well, that's just not far enough. <laughs> and then Misha winds up saying the exact same thing independently later on toward the end of the movie. Well, because he's still dealing with the, from a marketing standpoint, he's still dealing with the same people from different countries that want to get their market share back. So the same shit that appeals psychologically to one group of the same type of people is going to appeal to the other. You're going to have to, marketing is about saying 
what people want to hear. It's about getting like information that's already happening in their head and making the thing that you have appear to be the solution to what's going on inside them. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say it's like you could ban all the marketing you want in the world. Like it's not going to change the fact that people are reached in a very specific way and all marketing is is understanding how that functions. Right. So ban billboards, go right ahead. The, the, the tactic, like, um, I watched a movie called The Joneses a couple weeks ago, and in The Joneses, they literally implant people, like a family, what looks like a family, but it's just four actors in this house, and their entire job is to get people, like, in a given to spend more on shit. And so it's based on the concept of keeping up with The Joneses, or like they're the hip family that has everything. And it, so literally these people, their entire life is a series of showing off all the cool shit they have. So that other people will want to go buy it to, you know, keep up with them, to have the cool thing and be part of what, what's hip and going on. And that's just another way of marketing. Like you, you see like lifestyle brands, that's what they're all about. So you could try and ban all you want, but it, it's just a function of being and people are going to find a way to utilize it one way or the other. Now, you hope that people with that information would utilize it for good as opposed to evil, but that's more a function of society making good people or bad people. Right, right. You can't um, you can't really legislate that kind of morality. It's up to the consumer because like you said, you know, marketing is I, – I can't even really proclaim where you would draw the line between marketing and just flat-out communication because at some point I'm using – signs and symbols to convey thoughts into you and then maybe convince you to do something. You know, this can appear on multiple levels. This can be incredibly basic or it can be incredibly complex. And I guess the the difference between the sort of dishonest marketing that we see in the movie and that we see in real life would be an emphasis on using appeals to emotion to convince people to do things rather than appeals to rationality. But even that is too black and white of a comparison to draw because, I mean, all emotion, it, I can't be reasonable without appealing to emotions. Let's, let's, let's be real simple and real like self about this. Yeah. We have a show here ostensibly talking about movies, but really the show is about these ideas and concepts that we think to movies that we want people to pay attention to. So we're working on jumping into the conversation of, hey, you're talking about this movie. Well, did you ever notice this? this is pretty interesting over here, you know? In trying to guide the conversation that they're having. And like, but you have to find that conversation that they're having in the first place. One of the things, like if, if you, in the movie, when it finally gets to like the, the Japanese market shows up, what's interesting is that he utilizes them Ostensibly, you're going to have a healthier society in, in, if they're not eating burgers and they're eating a lot of vegetables. And it's all vegan restaurants and whatnot that are you know, coming over from Japan. And so he, his whole thing is, how do we make vegan restaurants? Well, you know, we, we'll see a couple of articles about uh, you know, beef, tainted meat. And if you do it just right, society will be so afraid of meat that eventually they'll just shift themselves away from it. You know, there's it, it a moves that they make culturally that just kind of push society away from that. Right. Like, what is it, the ones, like, they, they give out these little meat, meat thermometers or whatever, <laughs> like, 
Right. It's like a beef tester. They never even really explain what it is. They're just like, here's a beef tester. And I guess it's supposed to show that what you're eating in those burgers is not beef. But you're just trusting that the people on the other side, like that that's true. Right. For, for all you know, it's just a thing that's, if something's beef, then just don't eat this. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I, the problem I have with that kind of marketing is just the, uh, and, and that appeal to emotionality is just how tricky it is how mm-hmm. surreptitious it is because okay like we're we're doing this thing to talk about movies but really it's to talk about ideas but here we are saying that explicitly you know like yeah. we're not covering that up and i think so much of the marketing game the propaganda game is having a specific idea or goal in mind but then masking it in something else that's supposed to make people feel either good or bad about a particular thing and so then lead them by that emotional reaction mm-hmm. where you want them to go. But they don't really see that you had a separate end game from what's apparent. Um, you know, Edward Bernays is the kind of pioneer of all of this stuff. And uh, he was using the, what, the lessons he learned from his uncle, Sigmund Freud, on how the human mind can be played with, essentially, and different ideas about repression and all that jazz. Um Bernays employed all of this very explicitly, and I couldn't help but see a lot of his work in this movie because, you know, in the film, we hear a lot about, um, you know, different elements of culture being created by marketers. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, there's this shift in the movie from viewing like a normal, healthy body as beautiful to viewing fatness as beautiful, right? Like there's this overt cultural push to making a different body image be what is considered to be. That is not in any way analogous to anything currently going on in our society. (laughs) Oh, I didn't notice that. (laughs) Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, There are a couple things in the movie that are like that. Like, that's a little on the nose. It's very interesting. But uh, they're, they're, they're trying to change people's conception of beauty. But really, it just turns out to be a conspiracy by the fast food companies to get people to eat more fast food. So to be okay with the results of what fast food will get you. All right. And so now we can eat more fast food. Mm -hmm. So there's this roundaboutness to it all where even if people were to see that there seems to be this cultural change of uh, beauty, of the concept of beauty, no one's going to immediately assume, ah, it's just a plot by the fast food companies. It's a corporate plot. And Bernays outlined all kinds of things like this in his books back in the 20s. I think the movie doesn't seem as weird to me in the beginning. Like Maybe I'm just that little extra bit more cynical yeah. than you were to me. Because like, I think it does seem almost super conspiratorial. Or just to me, it's like, oh, I mean, yeah, this is exactly what happens. Like This is exactly the conversations they're having. In these so to me, it's like, it doesn't feel that odd it feels gross but it doesn't feel odd the idea that these things are happening is not at all strange to me of course i'm a conspiracy theorist (laughs) (laughs) of course and reading bernays like i know that this is how how it goes down there's a really well a famous story about something that bernays did that's very analogous to this movie was right exactly (laughs) back in like 1919 or whatever it was He was working for the American Tobacco Company. They wanted to double their market. He said, I have this great idea. 
let's get women to smoke. Because there was a taboo against that. At the time, there was this burgeoning women's suffrage movement, you know, women's rights and all that stuff and equality. And so he approached his feminist friends, basically, and said, hey, don't you think it's kind of oppressive that only men smoke? Don't you think that, like, women should smoke too? So he organized this whole campaign for the feminist movement, uh, calling cigarettes torches of freedom, and got a parade of suffragettes to all light up Lucky Strike cigarettes at the bang of a gong on Easter Sunday or whatever it was. And um, yeah, it doubled the market for American Tobacco Company and produced a generation of female smokers. Uh, but all along, you know, you, it's por- this propaganda is wrapped in, you know, oh, f- he's a feminist or he's this. Or, and, and all that stuff is the billboard. In reality, it was just a ploy for this particular company. It's not in any way like how the punk rock movement was co-opted to make rebellion stand for the, you know, the man. Like, because I watched chilling for Democratic, you know, candidates and elections. Right. You know, you they managed to make rebellion for the state. Like, sure. I mean, you could say you're rebelling for like this, you know, thing and that. There is, um, you know, racist, anti-racism, things like that. But really what their goal is, is destabilization of society. Yeah. And it's worked well, worked wonderful from where. Well, th- and this is a wonderful tactic. It's a great marketing tactic for both sides of the political spectrum, so-called, as we have it here in America. Both the left and the right both see themselves as the renegade outsiders, you know, both of them. It's a beautiful tactic. We, co- we as post-Enlightenment Americans, it's in our bones, this sort of spirit of revolution. But we're not revolutionaries, not really. We're lazy, we're fat, we're tired, we're busy. But we like the idea of revolution. And so if every four years we can get this idea that the guy you're going to vote for is going to lead some revolution, you don't really have to do all that much. You can just maybe make a Facebook post, maybe retweet a meme, and then vote for this dude... Or, or woman, then, you know, you're part of the rebellion and everything's great and you can live your life as you always have. So, you know, Donald Trump, he's a rebellious figure, except that he was president, you know, which is kind of like the opposite of the seat of rebellion, you know, and yeah. you look who he surrounded himself with. And he's like, oh, whatever happened to draining that swamp? It's all about power, collect, collecting power. Right. And then on, on the converse side, it's like, oh, well, Hil- I'm going to vote for Hillary to stand up to the patriarchy. You know, like, all right, because Hillary Clinton is this outsider fate. The idea of rebellion yeah. is is a very powerful branding technique. And I thought it was interesting in the movie uh, toward the end, uh, Misha, he says the phrase brand revolution. And he was talking about, you know, the creation of branding like 100 years ago and how brands themselves became these entities. So he's not quite talking about it in the way we are, but it stood out to me. I like the term brand revolution because revolution as a brand is also a huge part of this. So it's not well, explicit in the movie, but that did jump out. At and me. if you look at the history of the revolutions in Russia, there's a lot of branding going on there just based on who is in control of them really at any given time, who funded them, why they were really allowed they were because whose interests do those serve in the broader historical story 
because you know, once again, much like I was bitching about like the punk rock movement being assimilated over here in the U.S. to fight for a specific way that the thing to go any things to go anyway. The one thing that I I, I kept coming to is, and I don't know if you used the word specifically, but it was algorithm. Like the he had found the algorithm that was going to food magnates to change people, and the thing is. The, why is he successful? Because in the movie, the code isn't open source. He who controls the code controls what's being done with it. It's it's one of the reasons. Like as a marketer myself, I don't like. I love being sold. Like I love when I can watch somebody tick off all the boxes that make me want something. I'm. I see what they're doing. Like I'm watching, I'm like in the matrix, watching the code happen before my eyes. And I'm just super impressed by someone that can do it well and make it seem flawless and seamless. And that being as long as the public is kind of not paying attention and not aware to what's being done to them, it doesn't understand it. It works. I've long since said that the, if I could, like I'm not a person that has regrets. If I could do anything, Life, like I could go back and change one thing, I would have gave myself a copy of Cialdini's Influence in high school because understanding all the psychological tactics and things that you can do, that how your brain certain activities in the world, uh, it, it's a superpower. Like you, you, you can literally see what's going on, and it loses power over you. Now, granted, there are people that are so good at it that, like, I'm sure even I don't. Wow, how did that happen? Mm, right. But but you can bolster your defenses against marketing being used nefariously just by understanding how it functions. It's the thing that gives you just that split stop someone manipulating you to think. Their whole thing is to guide you through the process, do the thinking for you, and see like everything follows in this natural progression. Oh, this was the I would have always come to this result on my own. You may not have but it, it wants you to feel that way. So if you can see it happening, stop yourself and ask yourself those questions. It, it loses its power. And that's one of the reasons I, I, I like the idea of thinking of it in the terms of an algorithm. You know, what makes Twitter as powerful as it is is that it's not open source and no one can go in and see exactly what it's doing. If you knew exactly what it was, do, what it was doing, you'd, you'd have an, a better understanding of what, like, oh, yeah, it's working. We, we can see like maybe it's working in favor of like one party versus another, but to what degree? You know, we might find out that there's 10x the conservatives out there in the world than there are progressives, and somehow they they manage to get people to think they maybe didn't because we think that there's more of them than there are of the other side. Yeah, which may or may not be the case because you don't know that algorithm, you don't see how it functions. So much of marketing is perception management. That has to do with perceiving what other people view as normal, perceiving what your own conception of a normal life might be, perception about uh, certain desirable states. So, for instance, um, everyone's familiar with the idea of using sex in advertisements, right? So, if we can capture the individual's desire for sex, which has all kinds of corollary desires attached to it, maybe the desire to feel desirable, the desire to have a family, the desire to, you know, create existence beyond one's own short lifespan, 
all of these different desires that might be wrapped up into sex can then be manipulated when the advertiser using sex associates that with an automobile or a brand of gum or deodorant. So by creating the perception of what a brand will, I guess, cultivate, uh, you can affect how that person perceives the brand. So it's like perception upon perception. Well, in, in the game of perception, one of the strongest factors for any marketing is social proof. Mm-hmm. In politics, we'll just say like that's that's the whole game. In the in the case of the you know theoretical that I just gave to everybody, social proof. Like if you think majority of the people around you are Democrats more likely to be a Democrat and more likely to side with people because, well, everyone's like that, so it must be right. Mm-hmm. So if you could manipulate the way people see the people around them into believing that everyone around them is a Democrat, not a Republican, you're just inherently going to have Right. Because the social proof is showing you that that's the more appropriate thing to be. There's, there's a degree, I think probably a large degree, of almost hypnosis going on here in this form of marketing um, where, as you said before, we the marketer, the surreptitious marketer, is doing the thinking for the subject. They're kind of taking you and gently leading you down this pre-made path. And then once you wind up at the end of it, you think that it was your idea all along. Uh, but really, the marketer had already like game planned all of this stuff out. And sure, there are going to be outliers. There are going to be people who the marketing doesn't work for. But that's not really the point. No one expects to be 100% successful. If you can nail it 60 or 70% of the time, maybe even less than that, you're still making money hand over fist. Well, I mean, like, if you're to run an advertisement, like, if you can get, like, if you can get down to like a 3% buy in on your campaign, you're usually doing pretty good on sales. Like, you're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of people look at an advertisement and only get a few buys. Mm-hmm. But the idea, that those buys are, are like are multiple of what the actual what you spent on getting in front of people was. Yeah, that's actually as a side note, something I'd be really interested in getting into sometime, like doing a real study of like what is the actual efficacy of marketing and public relations. But that's a separate issue. Uh, I'll I will if we if we do that episode, we're, let's bring somebody on. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I know I know exactly the guy to get, and I think he'd love to do it. Perfect. Yeah, I, I've been wanting to do that for like some years now actually like how effective is all this propaganda stuff and marketing and whatever but uh well you know we would go to the high priest of propaganda nathan fraser himself <laughs> right <laughs> well on the subject of um the marketer getting the subject to think that buying the product or service was his idea all along yet again edward bernays has a a good example of this in his book propaganda written in 1928 Uh, He talks about, you know, if I'm working for a company that makes pianos, I want to sell their piano. But people don't necessarily just kind of walk out of their house on any given day and impulse buy a piano. So how am I going to go about doing this? And he outlines this whole elaborate process of first, I'm going to call the people, I'm going to call the home builders I know. And I'm going to say, hey, guys, it's really in style lately for people to have music rooms in their houses. Uh, because it gives them a sense of status and aristocratic, uh, like an aristocratic positioning in society. So when you build these new houses, 
make sure the more expensive houses you build have a little music room. And then when we, then he calls his realtor friends and says, hey, when you sell this house, make sure you mention there's a music room. Then he calls his playwright friends and says, hey, in your new play you're writing, maybe incorporate a music room in there, like shoot, have a major scene in a music room. And wouldn't you know it, I've got the perfect brand of piano that'll cut you a deal as a prop for your play. So he calls his mm-hmm. piano, blah, 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 blah. So basically, he he creates this conspiracy of brands to all come together in completely disparate areas of life. You would never expect the guy building your home is connected to the guy trying to sell you a piano. And in truth, he's not. Directly, he's not. Exactly. He's responding to what he sees as market demand. These are natural, almost natural connections that are being made by this third party, Edward Bernays, or whoever the propagandist may be who's simply grabbing this interest from over here and connecting it to this separate interest over here. But I mean, he gives a number of examples. of You buy that house, you're going to have this extra room. What do I do with this? Right. And naturally, you're going to go and find the thing that everyone else is putting in that room because it's what people do with that room. The culture tells you that that's a music room. And so basically, as he describes this whole elaborate plan of connecting like six different industries together, none of them really even know that they're being connected in this way. At the end, he says, well, guess what? John Jones goes out and he buys this brand of piano. And all along, he thought it was his idea. And that's the whole point, is you get the person to think that it was their idea. You don't come right out and say, hey, buy this brand of piano or else. Or you don't even come out and say, buy this brand of piano and you'll be really cool. The most effective way to sell it is to just kind of make the person stew in that brand. Make it ubiquitous kind of like McDonald's or something. Of course, they advertise and explicitly say, buy McDonald's, but also it's become a cultural thing. Like, you're just swimming in it. And I don't know how their business is doing right now because uh, I know there's a kind of health food uh, trend, uh, which, again, the movie parallels beautifully because that's how the movie ends. Like, the fast food giants get replaced by these, like, health food, fast food giants. But, uh, you know, back in the 90s or whatever... I mean, McDonald's was just the place to go, you know, like it was a staple of American diet. Well, I think, what is it somebody once explained? McDonald's is a fast food restaurant. It's actually a real estate company. Yeah. <laughs> and, and honestly, because they work on franchises, if you get into how franchises work, there's some funny ways in which they play with numbers, I'll just say. And also another thing to note, we're talking about marketing, we're talking about the algorithm, we're talking about reaching into people. So I want my daughter to do better than I did in life. I think we all want that. And so one of the things that I make I make it a point is to teach her, you know, the things that I've learned. Way, you know, she's eight years old, and we're talking about, you know, she wants to start up a lemonade stand. And you know, I talked to her. So, well, what are you what are you really selling when you sell lemonade? Because it's not lemonade you're selling. She's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, your your thirst being quenched. You're celebrating that feeling of you know, uh, of satisfaction. Uh, you're selling a lot of things that aren't lemonade. You're just telling them lemonade is the best tool for the job. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to get to that. But what you're really selling is this emotional need being met. So once again, it drives me back to the point, like this is something that's innate in people and it's about understanding it. That's what makes it so powerful. Only a few people understand it. It's it's way, way more powerful against people in nefarious ways than if everyone understood how this all worked for themselves. Make Cialdini required reading for all high school students. 
Well, I'm not in high school, but I'll have to check that out because I'm not familiar with that one. But yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Marketing and sales and even just communication in general, these are inextricably tied to certain emotional states, emotional realities. We are animals. We do have emotions. Unless there's something dangerously wrong with us, we've got a certain set of emotions. And I don't think that we can remove ourselves or our decision-making process from those emotions. That's crazy. The trick, I think, is to be able to, as an individual, really understand that fact about yourself, that you are driven by your emotions, and that you know, in the best of circumstances, you can use your rationality to make the best decisions almost for your emotions. So, you know, back to the McDonald's thing, you know, I'm hungry. I need food right now. So I have options. I can go to McDonald's and maybe that's the easiest option. However, rationally, I can consider certain things. I can say, well, I'm gonna have to pay for it, but it's cheap, but it's not really food. And it's probably going to give me some uh, bad experiences later on, uh, internally and later externally, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, George Carlin had a, a fun joke back in the old days about how, you know, a, a Big Mac isn't really a dollar because they're not factoring in the cost of triple bypass surgery or whatever. Like, you know, there are other costs down the way. So if I can interrupt my emotional reaction to the genuine feeling of hunger, which genuinely needs to be uh, satiated, if I can just rationally say, well, hold on, maybe it's worth, you know, waiting the extra 15 minutes to get home and make myself a sandwich or whatever, rather than going to McDonald's and sating my desire that way for all of these rational reasons. So I, ultimately, the lesson, I think, of, of, you know, understanding marketing is not to completely, like, banish all of your emotional desires and be a rational Spock-like robot. It's to rather realize that emotions and rationality are engaged in a dance. And you need to be the master of that dance. I, I can't wait for the next thing I'm about to say. All right. Well, why wait? So we can actually see in the way you're exactly how effective branding is mm -hmm. and that you continually keep going back to fast food restaurants because that's what the movie's about right whereas i would say why are we not talking about facebook's use of being human behavior mm -hmm. to manipulate you to do certain things like why is that like that's a far more ubiquitous thing than we've dealt with in our our world <laughs> in fast food even you know the way that they've managed to con Google completely guiding people and went to to vote for one party over another, right. giving them like just giving subtle thing, subtle little pushes a million times a day. Like Facebook knows exactly how many milliseconds you hover over a button, mm -hmm. what that means. You know, I there I've I've heard stories of like sixteen year old girls getting you know their 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 parents are tipped off or they know by advertisements that they get. Right. Because the algorithm, the people that can see inside the computers, which is learning the human algorithm, sees them better than they even know themselves. She doesn't even know she's pregnant yet. Impulses in her buying behavior, the companies know better. No, no, no signal something that's coming that she doesn't see yet. Yeah, and this is fairly old. Um, <laughs> yeah, I heard about, uh, there, there were news reports about this like 10 years ago. 
12 years ago oh, about, yeah. you know, the predictive pro, not predictive programming, but uh, consumer capitalism, right? Or surveillance capitalism, sorry. Surveillance capitalism is the term that's used. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, the marketers and the algorithms can pick up on very subtle physiological things almost that the that you consciously aren't aware of. I, I like the fast food example, though, because the mo- one of the most interesting things about this whole movie to me was how it focuses on the fast food thing, which is maybe the easiest and simplest example of marketing. Like, okay, yeah, we get it. McDonald's, Burger well, King. Visually, it's fun. He comes back and sees, oh my God, do you not see how fucking fat everybody right. play? Right. Well, right. The <laughs> it's only been a couple of years. It's a good example because it also like has deleterious effects on the actual human body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty important. But also, at the end, the replacement of your old fashioned 20th century fast food conglomerates like McDonald's or the burger, as they call it in the movie with the fast food health food places which i think is that's happening you know but it's the point that i draw from it is that it's still all just branding Mm -hmm. it's still just another corporation taking the place of the previous one and while they may have a better product and that's a good thing i'm not saying that you know they shouldn't have a better product it's good that they do but uh ultimately you have to ask yourself the question as the individual why are you engaging with this mm-hmm. company? Why are you taking the deal? Because every transaction you make is a business transaction, of course. You know, like they're making an offer and you're basically deciding whether or not you want to enter into a contract for 45 seconds, you know, mm-hmm. and, and make this exchange for this shitty burger or a super salad from whatever the modern place is. You're entering into business with this company and you need to understand that and understand your motivations for choosing to do so. Are you entering into business with this corporation because you like their product or are you entering into it because they sold you on the idea that, Hey, this is fit and healthy, you know, and maybe it is, but also maybe that's just their branding, you know, healthy, (laughs) healthy can be a slogan. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the product actually is healthy. I mean, let's, let's without going too deep into it. What does what does uh, natural mean? Organic mean? What do these terms mean? Because they're not they're they're used colloquially, mm-hmm. and they're also used legally. And the legalese and the legal versions doesn't mean anything. The colloquial version means right. Like there's a lot of chemical something and still have it be considered organic. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we were hanging out this past weekend, and we were talking about syrup. Uh, <laughs> there's a story from, from my family about, um, maple syrup and how, you know, I think it was Mrs. Butter- Butterworth was the example in this story mm-hmm. where a, a family member of mine wanted to stock up on maple syrup. And it's like, that's not maple syrup. That's corn they, syrup. They heard that maple syrup was going to, going to be having a price hike because it's just having some difficulties with maple trees out there and there not being that many of them left. Mm-hmm. But there's no maple syrup in most maple syrups that most people eat. It's corn <laughs> syrup. But you think, oh, well, it's maple flavored. So, like, yeah, I don't I don't know the cover of Mrs. Butterworth bottles off the top of my head, but I don't even know if the word maple is on there. But if it is, that's not, like, this is maple syrup as a declarative statement. That's fucking branding. You know, mm-hmm. like, that's a slogan. 
if the word is on there, it's well, a slogan. What, is, what does natural flavors mean? You, in your head, you believe natural flavors means, oh, it's going to have like flavors, you know, taken from blueberries or raspberries, whatever. Not that there's some chemical extracted from the anal glands of a woodchuck that is used to s- simulate the flavor of raspberries. Right, right. Where natural flavors actually just means, I, I think it may, is actually a brand in and of itself, to be completely honest. Like it's, a, it's a company that makes food additives. But, you know, once you get that idea out there, people being generally gullible, uh, being generally trusting... We'll see that branding. We'll see that slogan and assume that this is like a declarative statement about the facts of the product. Is it trusting or is it necessity to make shortcuts in your life? At the end, you rely on other people for all sorts of things in your life to to make decision-making easier for you. Like The bottom line is most people aren't experts. Most people aren't experts on food science. Most people aren't experts on a lot of things so they rely on other people to help them make decisions we have to that's not something we can get around in life like you're expert on combustion you rely on someone who is making your car run right so we just as people innately do this it's how human beings function so it's taking it's taking advantage of the to do things it's not even gullible it's like because we function that way and everything else why wouldn't we function with it in this way? Well, no. so what What I think it is, people do naturally need to make these shortcuts, but the uh, the shortcut is essentially like being trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Or, or not trustworthy. It's trusting in others yeah. in certain things. So if you really believed that, uh, you know, the maple, the so-called maple syrup was actually like going to kill you because it's made out of corn syrup, if you really believed that, then you would probably not trust those people. But most people don't really see it as that much of an issue, and so they make that shortcut and choose to trust. It's not a complete trust. It's just enough trust to like, mm-hmm. all right, well, I'm not going to go up in arms against Mrs. Butterworth. I'm just going to like, whatever, it's probably fine. So the shortcutting is the trusting. Mm-hmm. And I think, I hope that, you know, if people, if their perspective were changed a little bit, and if their priorities were realigned a little bit, they would maybe trust less and care more about certain things. So, I mean, I don't know, McDonald's, back to the fast food stuff. You know, a lot of people recognize that uh, McDonald's is unhealthy. Some of those people say, yeah, well, you know what? It's probably healthy enough. It's fine. Like, it's not the worst thing, so I'm going to keep eating it. But a lot of other people feel like, you know what? This stuff looks pretty bad for me. I'm not going to buy from there anymore. And I know people like that. So it just depends on the individual. What their priorities are will determine to what extent they're willing to put their health in the hands of others. In other words, their trust. It's even worse. It gets a little more nefarious than that. And that, well, you know, a lot of those foods that we eat that are not great for us all happen to be heavily subsidized. So people have lobbied to actually make them artificially affordable better foods, which I don't know that it makes your skin crawl. Anytime I hear people try and get you not to eat like fresh meat, they'd rather eat bugs and, you know, fucking weird proteins when, you know, I personally have a belief fresh meat, good lean meats, you know, 
proper fats and, and like fattened up in a respectable way, not with corn. Right. <laughs> you know, actually feeding your animal something it's designed to eat uh, lead to a better health outcome. But well, I agree. I, I I've got beef with anyone who is against meat. So we're about at that point since we're going to become talking about food here. Maybe it's just because I'm hungry and ready for lunch. But what were your overall thoughts on other than just a weird about marketing? <laughs> well, uh, I think I'm probably going to watch it again because there was a lot of imagery floating around in the background oh, that I it would be wise to just kind of watch it again and just focus on the background. There was a lot of communist posters and propaganda in the background because uh, Misha, one of the things he makes clear at a number of points throughout the movie is that, you know, marketing was really pioneered by Lenin and the communists. You know, they marketed this product, communism. They had a brand color, red, which incidentally was the color of the cow he had to sacrifice to see through the golden calf capitalist nightmare. They had a, a logo, which was the five-pointed star, the hammer and sickle, and like all brands really want, they had the power to outlaw all of their competitors, the communists did. So uh, that's a, a theme of the movie is how communism really was this kind of like ultra brand. Uh, but I wanted to get to this. I, I don't, we don't have time because it would just, we'd do another hour on it. But was this supposed to be like a kind of half-ass communist movie because of, you know, the, the ultimate repudiation of commerce and branding as this evil thing. And it seems to be in the movie that even when Misha uses marketing, he's doing it at the end, not because it in itself is good or neutral like a technology, but it is bad. And he's like a good communist ends justify the means he's using branding to put a final end to branding. And when the movie ends, you know, I mean, the, the cow constellation in the sky says, and a new era began. And that's the end of the movie. So, like, there's this utopian finish to this entire project where the kind of cartoonish capitalist system is totally obliterated. When Misha kind of, like, cries out to the heavens at the end when he declares his war on brands, he's standing on a balcony that's got the hammer and sickle, like, right in front of him. Uh, so, I, it's... Interesting road to go down there. We don't have to do it now, but I'm gonna want to. I'm gonna want to watch it again with that in mind now. Yeah, <laughs> ask yourself throughout. Like, is this movie kind of like branding for some kind of communist idea? I don't know that it is, but there's enough image imagery there that's mentioned contextually enough to. They were definitely making some kind of statement about that as well. Yeah, and the way that it ends, the way that it ends with like utopian no more branding the red cow versus the golden calf and it's only when he like becomes married to this red cow spirit that he finally is able to see the evils of the the capital uh capitalist world and incidentally capital the etymology of capital comes from cattle uh mm -hmm. in latin so i mean there's all kinds of interesting connections between money and cattle and property and capitalism that uh, it just makes me wonder how symbolic were the movie makers really trying to go with this and what kind of message were they ultimately hoping to leave people with? I'd like to see what, see what the audience thinks on that one because it's a good question. Uh, we're, we are talking about doing a bonus episode on the movie Pie, which uh, I'm excited to hear what Danny has to say about that. So that's why these bonus episodes happen. 
because I like to hear what he has to say about weird shit. <laughs> Pi is a weird movie. Aronofsky. Yeah. And uh, there's a tie-in, I guess, to this movie, in, at least insofar as there's like a, a Jewish undercurrent. I mean, in Pi, it's far more explicit, but there's a, a bit of a Jewish undercurrent in this movie. And well, I think you're, I think you're inevitably going to have that when you're talking Russians, because it's a lot of a lot of them from there, for sure. So, I guess we'll leave you today, folks. Uh, you know, go out there, go out in the world, keep one eye over your shoulder, one eye on the screen. That's right. So, well, thanks everyone for joining us. Take it easy. All right. Till next time. Do you have a small business looking to start one? One of the biggest reasons new businesses fail or never get off the ground at all is not understanding marketing as part of the process. You might have the best product in the world, but if you don't understand how to get and convert it, it'll be all for nothing. If you'd like to avoid rookie mistakes and put your best foot forward, go to nickypcopywriter.com slash road to hell and let me help.